Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here is an indie blues double shot from our featured artist today, Jim Carr. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs. Chicago's my town, let's all get it on in Chicago. Chicago Chicago's doing it to me Never lose my energy We got the lake up front With O'Hare at our back door Looking north to south There's so much and plenty more Chicago's doing it to me Never lose my energy Never lose my energy I'm happy here as I can be It's the right place for me to stay It's Chicago, I'm proud to say We're busy nine to five We jam the night away in Chicago We got music in the air And fine dining everywhere in Chicago Chicago's doing it to me Never lose my energy Tell me about it, Ralph
And that was Jim Carr from his brand new release. And we got Jim on the line. Hey, Jim, how you doing today? I'm just fine. And you? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I'm hanging in here. Now, this is the first time you've been on our show. And we always like to start off by giving our fans an opportunity to get to know who you are as an artist. And, of course, who you are as a person. And the best way to do that is through your journey. How you got to where you are today. So, give us the story of Jim Carr. All right. Well, I'm from the south side of Chicago and uh, which was I would say perfect city for me uh, established my roots there in the blues yeah, because I, I started listening to blues when I was about 14 and then I started going into clubs you know wherever I could get into uh, at the age of 16 and uh, I actually had to borrow my older brother's driver's license because back then you had you know you had to have IDs to get in so so that made him about four years older and I could get in the clubs and I was going around these blues clubs at 16 and hearing people like Otis Rush and Junior Wells and you know all these legends in the blues they, they were right at my my fingertips on the south side and the west side and um that's how it began so i actually started playing guitar at the age of 12 and took lessons had a great jazz guitar instructor and but then i i, I realized that i wanted to go in in the blues direction because i like to you know pull the strings and you know get these sounds that not not playing just straight notes like in jazz they just play you know straight notes they don't pull the strings and um that was the beginning of my journey you know i i had a, a band around chicago uh we we went semi-professional started playing clubs at 16 and 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 from there i i ended up going on to the east side of the city which was an area which was pretty rough. It was a uh, you know, ghetto area, and uh, and I just walked into the place because I, I I knew there were blue sessions going on, and I I was 17 at that time, and um, I didn't know anybody, and the only connection I had was the drummer in the house band. He worked with my older brother in a bowling alley. So he sort of invited me to come down, and uh, that—that's how it started. And uh, they called me up on stage, and I—I I didn't know any of the songs, but I just played my heart out. And then Junior Wells ended up walking in the door, and he heard me, and we started talking. And then Junior said, "Well, he says I, he says I know you don't you don't know the the, the tunes like you should." He said, but I like, I like the way you, you play. He said, I like your feel. And so Junior and I started uh, talking. He invited me to come over to Teresa's, which was a legendary uh, blues club. That's, that was sort of Junior Wells' home and Buddy Guy's home. That's where they, they actually started around the city. And I ended up hanging out at Teresa's. And uh, I was learning the songs, you know, uh, one after the other. And... 
and I I got right in the groove, and um, and then I was I was getting calls uh, to do gigs with Junior because he would go on tour with Buddy Guy always, but around town he had his own band, and I was in his band. And then there was another club called Johnny Peppers, Johnny Peppers Blues Lounge. That's where we had artists like uh, Howlin' Wolf and all these guys who. Even Muddy, Muddy would be in there. And uh, so I ended up going there. That was like an after-hours club. And I became a regular there. And Johnny Pepper and I uh, became pretty good friends. And, and Johnny always made sure that the, the house band would call me up to do a couple, couple of songs on the jam. And he made sure of that. And so, so Johnny really, really gave me support. And uh, and from that point, I was meeting all the uh, the blues legends around Chicago. I mean, I they were calling me for gigs, and and I would I would be hanging out. And uh, then I got a, a gig in a house band, a, a club called the Wise Fools. And Wise Fools, that was like uh, uh, the the first blues club on the north side of Chicago, which was, you know, a different scene. That was a lot of students, uh, wealthier class, you know, and uh, upper class. So, you know, they brought blues into the north side, and, and that club was, was phenomenal. And I got hired as a, in the house band. At the age of 18, I was, I was working there back in all the legacy you know, we would every week we'd have a different uh, blues uh, icon uh, coming in like Muddy Waters or Buddy Guy or uh, uh, John Little John you know all these all these names and I had a chance to play with all of them and then I ended up uh, Jimmy Rogers was a regular there so so Jimmy wanted to take our house band from Wise Fools on, on the road and into the studio. And so Jimmy Rogers and I became close friends. And uh, so we went out to California. And that was the first time I was in the studio to do an album. And that was with Jimmy Rogers. Freddie King was the producer. For those sessions so you know i got to know freddie and of course uh, uh jimmy and we did songs together and that album was called gold tail bird it was released on shelter records later on capital as a cd and uh, actually leon russell uh, was co-producer on there so things started to happen and uh and while we were out there, we started doing a little tour. So uh, Jimmy Rogers uh, and I, we became really close and, and we could read each other on stage. You know, he, we just knew exactly where we were going, you know, with any, any song or any solo, anything. It's just, uh, just clicked. And after that, uh, I returned to Chicago and <clears throat> excuse me then um, I 
I heard Bobby Blue Bland was was playing uh, in town at the Burning Spear. That was a famous blues club. And I decided to go go down to the Burning Spear. And I was probably, you know, one of the few white guys and or white persons in the club. It was a very nice club. Uh, and so anyway, uh, I was just knocked out uh, with with Bobby Bland's orchestra. <clears throat> he had uh, Wayne Bennett on guitar, which I always admired. And uh, Mel Brown was on second guitar. And on the break, they did two sets. On the break, I went up to the band room and I just wanted to introduce myself. And then uh, Bobby, we started talking to him, and Bobby said, "Oh, you, you, you play." He said, "You play with Junior Wells and all these, all these cats that I know." He said, "Then, then you must know how to how to play that guitar." He said, "Then." He said, "How would you like to play a song with me on the second set?" And I, I was flabbergasted. I, I was just speechless. I, I said, "Well." Yeah, sure. I said, but, but which one? He said, Stormy Monday. So, uh, of course, I, I played that, you know, since the age of 14. I was always uh, working, that, working that one out. And um, anyway, so I, I uh, went on the second set with him and, and uh, sort of brought the house down. And, and uh, you know, the, uh, the women were screaming and shouting and it was it was incredible it was just uh electrifying and then bobby said why don't you hey he called me son he said son why don't you come up to my uh, band room after the after the set and i did and he said uh, how would you like to go on tour with us and I, I i couldn't believe it and i said uh uh, yeah, I said, but how can that be? And he said, well, he said, because Wayne Bennett uh, is quitting. It's, it's his last night tonight. And he's sort of just retiring. And we need a guitar player. And uh, I said, of course. So I said, well, but when, when will it start? And he said, uh, we're going to board the bus tomorrow. He said, so if you can, leave tomorrow with us. And... Um, and of course I was there. And the first gig that we did was in Detroit at Cobra Hall, which is the you know the main concert auditorium hall there. With uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips was on the show, and uh, it was just so many stars, you know, also the R and B soul uh, artists, and uh, it, I, it just. It was incredible, but that was my first gig, so I didn't really know the show. And then Bobby said, well, you, you're going to have to learn the show. We have, we're going to put you up in Memphis, uh, you know, with the charts and a turntable and, and, and the records. And, and I have to, to learn all the, the tracks that we do on the show. So right after Cobo Hall, he sent me to Memphis and I spent a week in Memphis uh, and the hotel or motel that he put me up in, uh, that's another story in itself. Uh, I had no idea 
where I was because I, I was never in Memphis before. And uh, uh, well, I should take that back. Uh, when I was gigging around Chicago with all these names, I, I was actually uh, the guitar player with Coco Taylor for you know a couple of weeks, and we we did a couple shows in Memphis. Okay, so. And I stayed at her relative's house back then. So actually, I played with Coco down there uh, when she had the big hit, Wayne Dang Doodle. Anyway, so I'm in this motel and I'm learning songs. And uh, then I realized every day there's a busload of of black uh, students or, or a lot of younger people. You know, uh, they're they're bringing they're driving up to this motel and they're all pointing up at the uh, next to my room, I was on the balcony, and I had no idea why why they're doing that, you know. And I went down to the office, and I asked, uh, "Is there something I should know about this place?" And she and she said, "Are you kidding me? You, you don't know where you're at?" And I said, "No." She's this is the Lorraine Motel. This is where Martin Luther King was shot and killed. And I said, "I said, oh my God, I I, I didn't know that." And then uh, she, I said, so which room was he? And she said, next to yours, next to my room. That was where where he was assassinated. Right. Well, anyway, uh, I asked to be moved to a different room, you know, because, you know, when they, they were coming out, they saw me. On, I went out for a little a breath of fresh air, you know, to take a little break now and then, and they were cursing me, you know, and, and just wasn't the place for me to be. If, uh, they moved me to another room, then and then to another motel, actually. But uh, yeah, and, and and while I was there, Bobby showed up a couple of days, and he he said, "I I brought a friend with me. You should meet." And that was Albert King. <laughs> he <laughs> walked into my room, <laughs> and you know, and I looked down. He had his uh, his pink Cadillac, you know, it was uh, velvet. <laughs> it was incredible. All so, right. and. Um, from that point, uh, you know, then, then I ended up going on tour with them. And uh, I, I worked very hard, you know, endless hours uh, and got the show together. And and I was the only white guy in the orchestra. And, of course, the youngest. And uh, and we had, we had a, a really nice uh, luxury uh, band bus, a coach. And, um, and we did na a nationwide tour. And um, one of the one of the gigs that I recall right up front was uh, it was the opening year of the Superdome in New Orleans, and uh, and we were on a show with BB King and and Johnny Taylor, and uh, that that was uh, very memorable for me, you know, to to walk into this huge, you know, uh, sports stadium, uh, enclosed sports stadium. And um, I think there were about five thousand people at that show, but that was like nothing, you know. It was little like little ants, you know, was sporadically spaced out, you know, and uh, all uh, these balconies and seating, and it was great. So uh, yeah, from from that point, we just uh, you know we we toured the country. All right. Now, let's talk a little bit about this new release you have coming out. Um, 
When you were putting this together, what was the inspiration that that really drove this into existence? Okay, I um, I had composed a number of songs, uh, which I I really wanted to to get released, and um, but I knew I needed a good studio and I needed good musicians, and of course a great producer and uh, a friend of mine uh, was uh, Lonnie Mack actually uh, he recommended that I get in contact with a uh, with a Grammy award winning he's now a, a Hall of Famer uh, inductee uh, Jim Gaines oh yeah I know Jim yeah and uh, so he said I should I should contact him. He said he would be the perfect producer for, he's a guitar man's uh, producer. And, uh, and he was right. So he, I got his number and, and I called him and Jim was, you know, he's very busy. And he, he said, well, I have to hear your, your material before I even consider it. And I sent it to him and, and he liked it. He said, he said, you definitely have, uh, you know, the Chicago style and, and the blues roots, you know, wh whatever you're playing and it, whatever song or style it is, he said, it comes through. And so Jim wanted to do it. And he said, I'll, he said, but I'm very busy. I can only give you a two week time frame. And, and that's it. So, uh, so I said, okay. Uh, and he put the, the band together for me, all studio musicians down there, and uh, and I went into Arden Studios, which in Memphis, and uh, Arden Studios, uh, you know, they have just numerous uh, platinum albums on their walls of, of artists. You know, they, they went platinum. It's it's an incredible studio. I mean, ZZ Top did most of their their albums in there, and. Uh, yeah, bands like Led Zeppelin, and, you know, just amazing studio, and that's uh, that's what I did. Um, I actually knocked out the the album, eleven songs of mine, uh, and mixed it down and mastered it within that two week period, down to the last hour. Wow! Now. You had mentioned you had a bunch of songs that you had composed. And, of course, you know, before you can put out a good release, you have to have good songs. As a songwriter, what is your process that helps you kind of tap into the muse? Well, I listen to really all styles. You know, I, I never uh, confine myself to, to just one direction. So... Uh, I'm very influenced by and, and very up to date, you know, with other uh, styles going on, and um, so that it, it comes through uh, my songs, and it also, I mean, a lot of songs come from experience, uh, experiences that I've had in life, you know, and uh, the trials and tribulations, you know, ups and downs, and. There are a couple of uh, lighthearted, uh, up, up tempo things on there, and there, and there's some uh, some real bluesy, you know, sort of um, sad 
songs which touch your soul you know uh, it, it's really a a mixture and um that's what i like i, I like an i like an album where there's a variety you know if if uh, if an artist just every song is pretty much like the last one um you know that can get a little boring to be honest so so yeah i i, I branch out into different uh, directions but always keep that that blues feel and that blues touch to whatever i'm doing well yeah i you know i i'm a um I guess a, a blues expansionist. I believe blues is a living, living, breathing art form that is driven by innovation, not imitation. Um, when you, when you know, I can't imagine someone like Muddy Waters sitting down at the table writing a song and and being concerned whether it is bluesy enough. Um, you know, blues emanated from him because it was it was him. You know, exactly. Uh, all of his influences moved that music in that direction. Um, now, you know, a lot of songwriters have embraced the technology today, whether it's a cell phone or a home recording studio or whatever. What are some of the tools that you have in your toolkit as a writer that you have found to be indispensable to you? Okay. Um well, I mean, just a, a basic uh, recorder. <laughs> That's pretty much where it starts. And today, I can just use a recorder on the cell phone, you know, to 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 lay down the first tracks, you know, the rough the rough tracks. Uh, if I have an idea, it doesn't matter what time of day it is, you know, morning or evening, whatever. I just go over and take the guitar and, and turn on the, the cell phone and and. and get that first recording down because if you don't get that first recording down you're going to forget it you know the next day it's not going to be the same as it was and that's what i learned that it has to be at the spur of the moment to capture a feel or an idea that i have of course there are other other tools you know recording tools with uh you know the apple computer or the apple's a pc and you know it goes on and on um but i would say the main thing richard is is to capture an idea in the field before before it's lost you know and not not to not to uh, push it back to another day or so okay now uh one of the things that that's become quite a buzzword in the industry today is artificial intelligence. And, you know, it's going to be part of our everyday lives. In fact, it's, it is already in a, in a wide variety of, of areas. But for us as musicians, there are tools that have been developed and are being developed that help with lyrics, that help with melodies, that help with chord structures, bass lines, you name it. There is a uh, an AI tool either developed or on its way what do you believe the impact that artificial intelligence is going to have on the music industry as we move towards the future well it's it's going to expand uh, you know in, into new horizons I'm sure 
but, but the basic uh, core is still the feel, you know, the feel of the artist. And, you know, to be honest, uh, years ago, uh, as you know, uh, many studios, they use uh, electronic drums, you know, and, and, and uh, drummers are pretty much, uh, a lot of them were out of work, you know. But they never really duplicated the guitar sound with blues, you know, how you can pull those strings. They just never really got it. So thank goodness for that because uh, it still comes down to the artist. As far as the, uh, as the AI, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's gonna progress, it's, absolutely. And, you know, and I'm sure there's, uh, there'll be a point where it's hard to differentiate uh, between what's actually played and what's real and, and, and what is uh, duplicated. And it gets harder and harder, uh, but I still am a firm believer in the end, the feel is, uh, has got to be there. Right. The, and there has the authenticity of it. Yes. Of the music. The authenticity. Yes. Now, um, you had mentioned earlier that you had worked with Jim Gaines, uh, when you went into the studio and, you know, every artist has their way of capturing their sounds and you've worked with some, such a wide variety of artists. So in the past, what is your process? What do you like to do when you get in the studio that helps you capture the sound you're looking for that identifying, uh, tonality that you 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 know that it identifies you as an artist well yeah the first thing would be the uh, you know the amplifier and guitar of course I have my own guitars uh, and and the amplifier because uh, you know that that was in Memphis and I didn't have my own amp but it had to be an amp that I, I could get the sounds uh, that I wanted out of, out of the guitar it has to uh they have to, has to bring bring it through, and uh, so and then Jim Gaines helped me with it, and of course the engineer. That's he's another integral part of the recording session, and he came in and, and, and would you know place microphones in, in different uh, different areas and positions, and then then it comes down to you know uh, the rhythm section because. Uh, you know, I, I, I was playing with these guys for the first time, and it, it really clicked. I mean, Jim Gaines is just, uh, he's phenomenal. He knew exactly which musicians to bring in to fit my style. And uh, he was he was right on the mark. So it, we had no problem with that. And, and these guys would do, you know, two or three takes, and they had it down. And, um, you know, in the studio, it's also a thing of uh, you have to feel good, and and then you know sometimes Jim would say, "Let's just take a break right now, you know, and you know, and, and cool off for a little bit, you know." And so it, he, I mean, he's a he's a hard worker, and we were in the studio for twelve hours each day, and and I'm sure Richard, you know how that is if you hear music for twelve hours. Uh, straight, it's 
you know, it's hard work. But it was always, uh, he, he knew when it was time to, to refresh, you know, the mood. And, and he said, okay, we're just going to take a break and, and come back, you know, and, and it worked. Okay. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about one of the things I think that a lot of young musicians have a difficult time with is the definition of what is success in the music industry. Um, how do you define success and where do you find yourself on your timeline with your definition of success? Well, I would define success um, would be, uh, my perspective is, you know, having my songs uh, heard and liked. If I, if I know the audience uh, likes my material and, and would like to, to catch it live, I mean, that, that, that's just uh, that's the highest compliment. And, and that's success. Uh, of course, you know, there's also uh, the other factor is financial success, you know, and there are many artists who, who just never reach that level, um, you know, as to what is deserved. But success for me is um, is actually composing and, and getting the material out and people liking what they hear. And, and then coming to the show, and if they're uh, content with the show, uh, then I have new fans. And, and for me, that's success. Okay. Now, um, let's talk about the industry a little bit. The, the elephant in the room here is the fact that the consumer has embraced streaming as a way to consume music. And, you know, for the consumer, it's a no-brainer. I mean, I myself... of. I, I am of a certain age where I have purchased my music on uh, vinyl, 8-track, cassette, CD, downloads. And now, you know, for 10 or $15 a month, I have access to pretty much everything that's been recorded in the last 120 years. Uh, so it's a no-brainer on the consumer side. For the independent artist... Number one, you know, the revenue from uh, streaming is not sustainable as a business model. We all know that. But one of the biggest casualties of the streaming revolution or the digital revolution is the fact that music has lost that status as product. The consumer no longer looks at it as something to purchase, nor do they want to have that tactile experience and have to store it either on a device or on a shelf or whatever the case may be. How has this shift in in the perception by the consumer affected you as an artist? Well, it, it definitely cut the cut the royalties and revenue uh, down. Um, I mean that, but then again. Uh, through this, uh, through this media and streaming, uh, reaching a wider audience uh, worldwide, which is that's the advantage of it. So, uh, yeah, but uh, to be honest, 
a lot of people are not interested in, in whole albums anymore. They're, they're, you know, they're listening to one track and and then they move on, you know, uh, and stream to something else. Right. Um, yes. And I definitely agree with you. I mean, there is a different mindset in how people are listening to music. You know, uh, I grew up in the vinyl age during you know where music was a very tactile thing you you had a vinyl album you looked at the art you read the liner notes you put the you know the album on the platter you put the needle on it it was a very uh involved process today i think people are listening to music more in terms of creating a soundtrack that fits a mood or activity that they want to enhance. You know, my, my driving home from work playlist, my my workout playlist, my getting ready for, you know, Saturday night playlist, whatever the case may be. And it has, again a plus and minus side to it on the minus side like you said earlier you know they may pick one maybe two songs from a a release and and add it to a specific playlist but on the plus side the whole idea of genre is kind of a dying uh concept because it's not about the genre that the music fits into it's more the mood in which the music fits into so artists are now no longer restricted to 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 stay within the box that they've been put in so they can kind of expand out and and experiment with different musical um and not not so much genre cuz i hate using the word genres but expand their musical vocabulary outside of their norm and the fan base is open to it because they're listening for more of how does it fit in my mood related or my activity related playlists you know what i mean Absolutely, I agree with you. Um, wholeheartedly. Um, and, and I don't think we should be confined to any uh, genre. Uh, at least I'm not. Um, I, I, I want to venture into any style, uh, you know, wh- whatever feels good. And um, like I, I just composed uh, a song recently which is, uh, has a reggae feeling to it and that's my first reggae uh, track that I've ever written and and I tried it out uh, on stage and people love it so it's yeah it's always I'm always venturing you know and just like what you said there there's no reason to be limited or confined to any genre and you know it's interesting that you even say that because you know being a blues artist um and not to put you into that genre box but you look at some of the the artists of the past like willie dixon especially who was constantly uh, uh experimenting with different chord structures and rhythms and and musical ideas i mean he was a, a master of 
taking, you know, all of these musical influences and making them acceptable to blues audiences. You know what I Absolutely. mean? Absolutely, Richard. And by the way, uh, I knew Willie Dixon personally. I used to hang out at his studio, oh. and that's how I got that's how I got the gig when I was eighteen with Coco Taylor. Because he, he was producing her, you know, Wayne Dang Doodle, that was on his label. And, uh, yeah, I, really, I do, really. All right. Well, and, cool. And you, and you, um, you summarize that perfectly. I mean, he, he, he would venture into all different styles. Yeah. I, I remember that, that, one, that one song he, he composed, I, it was amazing, where he was just walking, you know, with his, with his boots. And it was amazing. The whole song was just like you could hear the boots just walking. <laughs> nice. Well, see, that's musical, you know, communication. That's bringing that human emotion into it just at the, at the you know, the rawest authenticity, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I, again, I... Um, I just feel, I feel gifted and honored, you know, that I grew up in Chicago, you know, on the South Side there, to meet all these talented, legendary uh, artists. Oh, there's, a, I want to back up just a little bit, because when I was out in California, uh, then I ended up moving out there after the tour with Jimmy Rogers. And then I ended up uh, uh, meeting, uh, meeting up with John Lee Hooker. Oh, okay. And, uh, and uh, I was playing with a band that I, I had uh, put together out there, and we opened the show for him. And then John, uh, he sent his uh, his manager up to the, my band room. He said he wanted to talk to me after the show. And um, and I went down there, and he said, uh, he said, would you like to record with me? And I said, of course. You know, I always liked John Lee Hooker's style with the boogie and, and yeah. you know. Yeah. Anyway, I said, uh, when? He said, tomorrow. <laughs> it was always these, these short terms, like with Bobby Blue Bland, you know, next day and uh, leave it on the bus. And then John Lee Hooker in the studio, he said, tomorrow. And, and I went to L.A. and uh, um, went in the studio with him and, uh, you know, and recorded uh, several tracks. That was called Free Beer and Chicken, uh, the album. And it was uh, later released on uh, MCA, uh, on the CD later. It was reissued. And uh, in that session, Joe Cocker strolled in and did a, sang a couple songs. And, and then John said, uh, if you ever want to tour with me, give me a call. Nice. And, um, and he was in the he lived in the Bay Area, so so then I ended up going up to the Bay Area, and I gave him a call, and then he offered me a European tour, and I, I went to Europe, and then uh, recorded two albums with him on that tour. Nice. One thing led to the next. It's just like it's it's amazing how 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 the whole uh, process has gone. <laughs> Well, you know, I think a lot of musicians don't understand the power of yes, you know, um, and, and just making yourself available there and, and being open to, you know, hey, you know, want to record tomorrow? Yes. You know, and that's really what it's all about. You, you know? got it. You got it. And, and I went for it. 
and uh, it was just an amazing session. I'm I'm very proud of this album. Uh, the the track that featured my guitar chores or solo is called Bluebird, and 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 John. He brought tears to my eyes the way he sang that, and he told me later that's one of his all-time favorite songs, because because we, we, we it, there was such a feeling going on in the studio, and the way he sang that you got to hear it. it's called Bluebird, and, and, it it's, and it's about and it's about Atlanta, you know he's talking about it uh, he's singing about Atlanta. Nice, okay. Now you know uh, one of the things. You know, the, the whole idea of streaming, and we touched on it a little earlier, about how we're not being fairly compensated, and it's not really a sustainable business model. And one of the problems is that we, as artists, um, we find it difficult to kind of organize, um, and we don't really have anyone to bargain with. We don't have a, a structure within our industry where we can, you know, say, okay, record companies, you know, okay, streaming services, okay, distributors, yada, yada. You know, much like the, the actors and the writers did, they, they were able to organize and actually had studio executives that they can now... Um, uh, uh, bargain with and they're dealing with the same problems that we are with streaming and royalties and not getting paid you know compensated fairly uh for their work and so we have to go another route we have to look at the future of this technology and try to get a seat at the table prior to its you know mass acceptance and control how this uh, whole thing operates and I'm watching some of this technology and one of them is um, there are streaming services that are developed and are being developed utilizing the blockchain or that crypto technology that cryptocurrency uses to secure itself and one of the big advantages that i'm seeing in this new technique this new technology is the fact that these streaming services are decentralized in other words no person or company or board of directors can own and control this service it is owned by the fans and it is owned by the artists who put up their content and they can they're claiming they can pay up to 80 percent of the incoming revenue directly back to the artist uh one of the services that i'm watching is this one called audius.co uh who has the backing right now of like Katy perry jason derillo uh a lot of the uh rap and edm artists uh i even put my podcast up there on audius and it seems to be where we're headed in the future um what do you think of that as a potential for the uh for the industry going forward well i think it's i think that's uh, very promising i think uh you know it, it will uh enable artists to to make a living out of their career and um and, and if it uh, increases um you know the royalties uh, I'm definitely for it. Now, and, yeah, you know, and, and I'm watching this technology 
And it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around the whole blockchain and NFTs and things like that. And I'm watching how this is being applied to the music industry. And one of the other sites that I'm watching is this site called Royal.io. Now, you've been in the industry a long time, and you've seen a lot of these record companies, you know, sign artists, yada, yada. And we know that, you know, a record contract is nothing more than a bad loan with bad terms. Exactly. Um, but there is this, this site, Royal.io, which really promises to kind of replace the record company as a financial structure within the industry in that uh, one of the rap artists that I'm watching is Nas and he uses this site and on his last release what he did is he took two songs and he made enough of these NFTs that represented a small portion of his streaming royalties and he made enough to cover one half of the streaming royalties on these two songs and because this whole thing with the blockchain is based on smart contracts the administration of these streaming um, royalties is all done automatically in other words the artist doesn't have to physically administer the the uh, distribution of this money. It's all done kind of through these smart contracts. And he sold these things to his fan base and was able to generate almost 600000 in upfront income. In addition, he now had over 3,000 fans that had an economic interest in making sure that his music is streamed. In addition to that, these um, NFTs are available on the open market. So they're bought and sold. So if I bought one and someone said, hey, would you sell yours to me for X amount more than you paid... I would sell it to him. Now, Nas would get a commission now for in perpetuity on anything that is resold going forward into the future. So that now becomes another revenue stream. Um, what do you think of that as a potential to replace that economic structure that was once held by the record company? Well, I, I basically support that, and I and I think it's time for a change, and I think that is the future. Yeah, I um, think that we're headed in that direction. That's for sure. Yes, and I th also think it's more lucrative for the artists um, because uh, record labels uh, they just have um, they have a hand over everything, you know, complete control over the artist, and uh, I think there's more freedom. With the, uh, you know, with this new concept. Well, yeah, I think it's it's more of a direct relationship between the fan and the artist. You know, with without all of the middlemen. You know, one of the biggest issues I think we have in the music industry is the fact that there are too many middlemen within our 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 structure in the in the business itself. Uh, there was an article in Billboard magazine where they they said of the billions of dollars that the uh, music industry generates. 
rates, only 12% gets to the artist. That's a horrible statistic. And that's, you know, and that's really accounting for the, you know, the major artists. It doesn't even um, take into account what the independent artist is getting in terms of return on investment, you know, of going into the studio and, and recording and then putting out their music and not even having the opportunity to um, to break even. You know exactly, and and again, I support any uh, concept which which will uh, enable an artist to make a career and a living out of his music. Oh yeah, because uh, uh, it's just been nearly impossible. You know, uh, and especially when the, the Corona hit. You know, we're still recovering from from that from that uh, era, and um, you know, it's time for for some changes. I agree, 100%. Now, um, you know, when the pandemic hit, um, or just before the pandemic, we all kind of looked at content creation and, and social media as a necessary evil. Uh, we all kind of said, okay, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to, you know, um, make some content, put it on social media. But when the pandemic hit, it accelerated that whole world. It was the only way that we could stay connected to our fans. It was the only way that, you know, we can even generate income by doing live streams or whatever the case may be. Uh, and as the months turned into years, that content become, became very personal. Uh, we started to show our, our families, our Pets, our you know, our barnyard animals, our our excursions and hobbies and things that we did, and the fans really gravitated to that. And we, a, a lot of artists started to realize this is a branding opportunity where we can show who we are as people as well as artists, and the fans can invest themselves into us as. Uh, someone they they feel connected to, right? It's more more personalized. Yeah, more yes. personalized. What are some of the things that you are doing, utilizing content and social media to kind of promote your brand and to promote this new release to your fan base? Well, I I, I do postings, and uh, I I try to inform fans of, uh, of upcoming shows and uh, and also some some of my activities um, it, again you know like sort of uh, personalizing um, to establish a, a connection you know with the fans right and I, I I just don't like all the I don't like barriers you know and boundaries I just I never did <laughs> and um uh, so yeah, I, I, in this regards, uh, I definitely think social media is, is an essential tool to to reach fan base, and then I also you know, use it to uh, to link fans to my website, which um, right the central I, hub. I, 
should I mention the website now? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it's just uh, it's just www and then my name Jim Carr K A H R dot com. All right, Very simple. Well, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show and and talking with me. It's it's been a real pleasure, and um, we're going to mine too, Richard. Mine too, and. Uh, we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from your new release. You guys are going to love this. You know what? Screw the neighbors. We're going to turn it up loud. That's what we're going to do and have a party. Here we go. Go for it, man. Go yeah. for it. <laughs>
This is kind of a love song And it goes out from me to you Please listen to the message Believe me, every word is true
tell the whole story Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. 